Victor Hugo once wrote that God cannot be seen well by human eyes except through tears. God cannot be seen well through human eyes except through tears. Irrespective of whether or not you agree wholeheartedly with Victor Hugo's assertion, it's difficult to escape from the truth to which his words point, right? The truth that the shedding of tears is a unique, mysterious, unpredictable, and wholly irreplaceable portion of what it means to be authentically human. Even those who do not cry, or who struggle to cry, know what it means to weep. In fact, Maurice Chapelon puts it this way, even those who never cry are absolutely full of tears. An acquaintance of mine said to me recently that he has made the decision not to attend his church's Sunday morning worship service in person for the foreseeable future. When I asked him why, his response caught me completely off guard. To tell you the truth, he said, I'm just embarrassed at my level of emotion these days. He went on to explain to me that he has lost his mother, his brother, and a very dear friend in the span of a year and a half. Tears come out of nowhere for me, he said. Music makes me cry. Praying makes me cry. Holy Communion makes me cry. I feel like I would be wiping tears away all service long. And then he added this, nobody wants that in church. Nobody wants to be sitting next to a weeping mess in church. And to be honest, the conversation made me wonder how many people like that man conceptualize the church not as a safe place for the messiness and the rawness of human emotion, but as a sanitized space where emotions are carefully guarded, images are carefully managed. In fact, it makes me wonder if a portion of the church's people, and this is really a question for you to ponder, it's not an accusation, but I do find myself wondering if a portion of the church's people are so utterly intimidated by the emotional intensity of something like wordless weeping that they're unintentionally creating barriers toward those outside the church who already feel completely unpresentable because of the rawness of their pain and their grief and their suffering. I wonder. In a 2018 article entitled Crying in Church, Heidi Haverkamp offers these insights. Most of us have something to cry about, no matter what time of the year it is. I find myself wishing that people cried in church more often. Why not? We welcome people to wear jeans, to bring their children, to receive communion, to fill out a visitor's card, to share their most personal concerns. Why not also welcome people to cry? Most of us could stand to be reminded that we are not alone in carrying grief, worry, and struggle. If we can't cry in church, what's the point of being there? 
I wonder what it is that inspires you to weep these days. I wonder what it is that you've brought to this time of worship that could inspire tears if you were to think about it long enough. And all this talk of weeping brings me to what I consider to be one of the most important sentences in the entire Bible. And by the way, that is not merely a sermonic gimmick designed to make you pay attention. I really do believe that what I'm about to reference is one of the most important sentences in the entire Bible, at least when it comes to understanding the nature and the character of God. The sentence is found in John's Gospel, the 11th chapter, the 35th verse. In the original Greek language, it reads this way. Etachrysin ho aesus. English translation, Jesus wept. Or perhaps a better translation, Jesus began to weep. Why was Jesus weeping? Jesus weeps over the things that inspire us to weep. Personal suffering, the loss of a loved one, the pain of grief, the agonizing recognition that a dear friend is no longer in the world. And please do not miss this detail in the story. Jesus loved this man, Lazarus. He loved him. These two men had spent important moments together and apparently cultivated the kind of friendship that was even more important to Jesus than the, onlook the onlookers suspected. Look how he loved this man. And when Jesus walks into that communal environment of grief generated by the death of Lazarus following an illness, the gospel writer makes it a point to tell us that Jesus was greatly disturbed in his spirit and deeply moved, so much so that Jesus begins to weep. And why do I believe this detail is so important? Why would I say that this short sentence is one of the most important sentences in the entire Bible? Here's why. Because the church has long believed, and by the way, I make no presuppositions about your relationship to this belief. I want to honor you that way. But the church has long believed that when we speak of Jesus, we are not simply describing a healer, a teacher, a prophet, a compelling moral figure. Rather, the church has long believed that when we speak of Jesus, we are describing nothing less than the incarnated revelation of God's ontological being, the fullness of, of God's self-disclosure. So much so that if we want to know what the character of God is like, the church believes that we have no choice but to look to Jesus. Jesus is the revealer of God's nature, God's temperament, God's character. And if that is the case, if there is any truth to that, if Jesus truly is the fullness of God's self-revelation, then if we have a Jesus who weeps, we must also have what? A God who weeps. Not a stoic God who manufactures our suffering and assigns it, then sits back and watch and sits back and watches. Let's see how they handle this cancer. Let's see how they handle this tragedy. Let's see how they handle this natural disaster. Let's see how they handle this warfare. Let's see how they handle this violence. 
Not that kind of a God. Rather, the God we find in the person of Jesus is this emotional, vulnerable, thoroughly invested parent so intimately related to the pilgrimage that this God actually breaks where we suffer. This God actually grieves where we mourn. This God actually weeps where we shed tears. If you have come to this worship experience today at all curious or perhaps even skeptical about how it is that God relates to your personal pain, your personal suffering, I would encourage you to spend some extra time with the story of Lazarus this week and pay particularly close attention to what the gospel writer so pointedly describes as Jesus weeping. Because in the tears of Jesus, I believe with all of my soul that we glimpse a God who cares more about our suffering than we do and who allows divine tears to commingle with ours. The phone call came to me from a leader in the church. Her name was Mary. I was her very young pastor. I needed to come to my house tonight, she said, because I'm really struggling with something and I need your help. And I confess to you with embarrassment that at that point in the journey, I was not really quick about um, bringing sensitivity to the urgency of her tone. And that really is a confession. I remember trying to talk her into waiting until the next day because it was close to 11 o'clock and when I suggested that her response was quick. No, it can't wait. I need to see you tonight. Please come. Well, will you at least tell me what the issue is over the phone? And when I asked that question, again, confessionally, in a spirit of some frustration, more resentment. When I asked the question, she began to cry with the kind of crying that made it difficult for her to breathe, let alone respond to my insensitive question. The issue, she finally said when she could speak, the issue is that I just found out my 25-year-old son has AIDS. And this was a period of history in which that particular diagnosis landed with the weight of mortality. There were three and a half miles between my house and her house. And isn't it funny what we remember when we look back on past experiences? What I remember in driving that three and a half miles, what I remember most is the sight of my right hand trembling on the steering wheel of my Toyota Tercel as I made my way from my house to her house. And as we sat in Mary's living room that night, at one point, I don't remember all that we talked about, but at one point I remember that she clenched her fists and she screamed into the space of that living room, where am I supposed to find Jesus in this kind of pain? How am I supposed to relate to Jesus after finding out that my only son has AIDS? I was so intimidated by her emotion, quite frankly, I did not know what to say. But what I remember doing in my nervousness was reaching toward the coffee table and grabbing hold of the Bible, the tattered Bible that she kept there. Had no idea what I was going to go to do with it, but I think I did it instinctively just to make myself feel connected to this faith story that I was struggling to believe in those moments. 
And as I sat there holding tightly to that Bible, something happened, and this isn't a gimmick. This really happened, and this kind of thing doesn't happen to me very often. But all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a single verse of Scripture came into my thoughts. It was a verse of Scripture that I had memorized back in vacation Bible school when I was a kid. John chapter 11, verse 35. Jesus began to weep. So I flipped the pages to that part of the Bible and I said, Mary, I want you to listen to something. There was this time in the Bible when Jesus came upon two uh, sisters. One of the sisters was Martha. The other sister had your name, Mary. And they were heartbroken. They were grief-stricken because they had just lost their beloved brother and they didn't know what life was going to mean without him and this is what happened and at that point I read these two verses of scripture when Jesus saw the women weeping he was greatly disturbed in his spirit and deeply moved and Jesus began to weep did you hear that Mary Jesus began to weep Jesus began to weep and I looked at her and I said hey Mary if you minutes ago you asked this really good question you asked how am I supposed to relate to Jesus in this kind of suffering and to be honest with you I'm not smart enough to have a good answer for that question I'm really not but will you do for me a favor Mary I remember saying will you do for me this favor in your imagination will you keep trying to picture a Jesus who weeps will you do that because I believe with all of my soul that that's what Jesus is doing over you and your son tonight. I believe that he is weeping with tears that flow deeply into your soul and the soul of your boy. And I have no idea. It gives me goosebumps when I refer to that because I have no idea why I said that. It was not a theological construct about which I'd ever thought before, but I said it. And what's more, she seemed to hear it. And over the next few weeks, whenever I would call Mary and ask her how she was doing, she would respond in exactly the same way. I'm handling it, she would say. I'm handling it. But, she would quickly add, you should know that Jesus and I are still doing a good bit of weeping together. Jesus and I weeping together. And in the midst of that pain, those words were so encouraging to me because they made me think that this woman of faith had come to embrace a foundational biblical truth about the character of God, that the God we find in Jesus is not a stoic deity who manufactures our suffering, her boy's suffering, and then sits back to watch. The God we find in Jesus is this thoroughly invested, emotional, vulnerable parent, so connected to each pilgrimage that this God breaks where we suffer. This God weeps where we shed tears. But there is just one more thing. There has to be. There has to be because the story of Lazarus does not end with weeping, as important as that is. The story of Lazarus ends with life. New life, vitality bursting forth from a tomb. Joy finding fresh expression where there had been nothing but despair. 
the things of death dramatically parting way for unexpected life. Jesus goes to the place where they've buried Lazarus. And he says to the people there, roll away the stone that's in front of Lazarus' tomb. And Martha immediately comes to the conclusion that this is a really bad idea. I don't mean to tell you your business, teacher, but our brother's been dead four days. If you roll away that stone, I'm afraid the stench will be overwhelming. But Jesus is resolute. Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Roll away the stone. And so the people rolled away the stone. And in my imagination, Jesus stands there, looking into the darkness of that tomb and maybe even pointing a finger into the darkness. And this is what he says. It's absurd, really, what he says in the face of death. Lazarus! Come out. And I love the way the scripture describes what happens next. It's a minimalist account, really. We don't get many details. This is how scripture describes it. The dead man came out. Talk about the walking dead. I don't know if any of you watched that television show, but this isn't a zombie apocalypse. This is, this is the, resurrecting, the resurrective power of God. Lazarus come out, the dead man comes out, and all that Jesus says is, unbind him. A moment when the grace of God takes hold of certain death and transforms it into vibrant new life. Unbind that man and let him leave behind the things of death. You see, the God we find in Jesus is not only a vulnerable God who weeps, but the God we find in Jesus is also a life-giving God who resurrects. A God whose joy and whose specialty it is to take hold of our places of pain and suffering for the purpose of transfiguring them into new hope. A God who takes hold of our places of enslavement and reconfigures them so that they become new freedom. A God who takes hold of wherever it is in our life that we're experiencing the spirit of death and transfigures it into newness of life. You've experienced it. I know you have. Maybe some of you have a desperate need to experience it today. I'll return to my friend Mary for just a moment. About a month after she shared with me the hard news about her son, she came to worship one Sunday morning. And after worship, she remained in her pew, and so I greeted people in the back. And then after I was finished greeting, walked back into the sanctuary, sat down beside her. And what I remember is that Mary turned to me and smiled, which was really unusual because I had not seen her smile for well over a month. That day she smiled, and she said to me, I just wanted to let you know something. I thought you'd be interested in it. Last night, for the first time in many years, my son and I prayed together. Doesn't that sound weird? We prayed. Then we cried, then we prayed some more, then we cried. And after all the praying and crying, my son looked at me, my 25-year-old son, and he said, Hey, Mom, I just want to let you know that for some reason, I feel more alive right now than I've ever felt before. And I told him that I didn't understand what he meant, and so my boy kept talking. She said, My boy isn't one for talking, but he kept talking last night. Wouldn't shut up. 
What I'm trying to tell you, Mom, is that somehow in the mess of this, I feel like I've re... I feel like I have been reconnected to a life or a world in which I've never really known quite how to live. And I just want to use whatever time I have left, whether it's a year or five years or 50 years, I just want to use whatever time I have left to put together a life that sings. Those were his words because, you see, he was a musician. Music meant joy to him. I just want to spend whatever time I have left putting together the kind of life that sings. And Mary looked at me and she said, do you know how much it meant to me to hear those words last night? My son's words make me think that there really is a savior in this world who is holding on to my boy and whose grace is bigger than death. And with that, she stood up, gently touched my hand, told me to have a good week, and walked out of the sanctuary. And I sat there. It's an interesting thing. Here we are in uh, Women's History Month, and I've been spending a lot of time thinking about the women who have shaped my life, and there have been so many of those. But this weekend, I've spent some particular time thinking about Mary and thinking more specifically about what she taught me about the nature of our God the God we find in Jesus, that this God is vulnerable enough to relate to our suffering first through weeping, but then when the weeping is finished, this same God generates new life in our places of pain and suffering and death. Jesus wept, to be sure. Jesus also stood at the tomb and spoke life into it. And through both his tears and his resurrective grace, this Jesus reveals to us a God for whom weeping comes naturally and who will never allow suffering and death to be the end of the story. That is the God we find in Jesus, in whose name I gratefully preach. Amen.